Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, I'd like to continue thinking this evening with you about the importance of testimony by turning in the book of Acts to Paul's testimony in chapter 22. I'd like to read to you just the first 22 verses of the chapter, a story that I hope is well familiar to you, but uh, let's put it before us now. He says, chapter 22, verse 1, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you are all today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the council of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up at him and he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now, it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And they listened to him until this word, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Amen. Let's pray once more together. Our Father in heaven, even as you have made known to us your will, even as you have opened our eyes that we might see such things, even as we should be the 
ones who have been from the nations, uh, from the Gentiles, redeemed, uh, baptized, and having our sins washed away, being able now to consider your calling and your will for our lives. We pray that you would make clear our role in this great redemption by your grace. Through Christ our Lord, amen. From time to time, people were called to take the stand as witnesses in court. I was interested to find out from Buddy's class that uh, 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 oral testimony, people testifying, is called primary evidence, right? And that uh, other artifacts or written documents are called secondary evidence. Not to say that it's any less, but putting things all together, witnesses are the primary means by which truth is established in the court of law. Witnesses are bound by law and oath to tell the truth about all that they have seen and heard. What do you suppose might happen in our legal system if witnesses never testified? Surely very little truth would ever be established in the world, and it would be lawless. And yet, this is what is happening every day around us in the world, if you like, in the court of public opinion. I read someone recently who said that several years ago, when she was just a little girl in her grandmother's church, they regularly took song requests and had people give what they called testimonies. Uh, this is very unpresbyterian, I know, but by a show of hands, some of you, especially who are older, were you ever in churches where that was just a regular part of the service here? Uh, yes, one, two, no, 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 Okay, all right, we don't have to be so old even, look at that. Uh, all right. Um, Thank you very much. Uh, This was once just extremely common throughout America. Everybody, therefore, knew that Christ made a tremendous difference in human life if they had ever gone to church. Now, I'm not advocating necessarily a return to that practice here, but my point is simply this. People today don't know what everybody who ever darkened the door of a church used to know. People don't tell their story, and therefore others don't hear their story. We're going to hear one tonight, of course, from the Apostle Paul and learn from it too, I hope. But this is, this is not the ordinary experience of people in the world. The eminent scholar of 100 years ago, Gresham Mason, said the Christian movement in AD 35 would have appeared to a superficial observer to be a Jewish sect. 30 years later, it was plainly a world religion. The establishment of Christianity as a world religion can be ascribed, humanly speaking, to one man, Paul. It's doubtful whether anyone other than Jesus has had such a tremendous influence on the world. Humanly speaking, it is through him that a small Jewish religious sect broke out in Asia and then in Europe, and now, well, over two billion people today have read him, have found their lives transformed by his writings, and throughout the centuries, people have been utterly changed by the teachings of this man, Paul. Paul, who devoted all of his great powers, and great powers they were indeed, to spread the good news of Jesus. And comparing himself to every other disciple, he can candidly say that he worked harder than them all, though immediately adding, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. It is in the book of Acts that we read why 
why this man did all that, how this man became the one through whom, humanly speaking, we sit here today. This story of Paul's meeting of the risen Lord on the road to Damascus is recounted for us in the book of Acts, not once, not twice, but three times. In fact, the conversion of Paul is given more space in the New Testament than any other event except the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord. And therefore, we should pause and ask, why? Why is this story so um, spotlighted, so, so driven home in, in the reader uh, when, when Luke is plainly uh, a careful writer? Well, I have three reasons for you this evening, three reasons which I hope will help us to consider the power of testimony, three reasons which I hope will encourage you to become one who testifies, in this sense, for the Lord. The reason why, in my judgment, this is given is for three things, because number one, Jesus is alive. Number two, Jesus changes lives. And number three, that Jesus makes us an ambassador of his grace, or that Jesus makes us ambassadors of grace, I should say. Uh, First, as a defense, as Paul puts it, or a demonstration or good reason to believe that Jesus is alive. It's hammered home because Jesus is alive. Why do we believe what we believe? Is it because of what we are told by others or our society or what we'd like to be true? Or do we have, in fact, solid reasons to believe? We need reasons. We need to be able to give reasons. When Paul himself went into city to city, into synagogue and synagogue, we read time and time again that he reasoned with those who were there, uh, persuading them, giving them proof from the scriptures and explaining how this Jesus is the Christ and so forth. In fact, the Bible says that in our hearts that we are to set apart Christ as Lord, always being prepared to give an answer or a defense, same word, to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that is in you. But he says, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience and so forth. Well, here in verse 1 of the chapter, we realize, we, we realize that Paul is giving his defense, his reason. Sa- same word. There, there is an important reason that people need to consider, that we need to consider. Why is this testimony front and center? Because Jesus is alive. It meant so much to the church and the gospel itself, honestly, to have this man who was the chief persecutor of the growing church to become Christ's chosen apostle to the Gentiles. He used to go from city to city to round them up, to put them in trial, and even to put them to death. And now he goes from city to city to bring them eternal life. What happened? How could this man have made such a change? In the 1920s, Gresham Machen wrote a book uh, called The Origin of Paul's Religion, a very thorough book that has never been answered. He asked the question, what happened to the Saul of Tarsus, this rabid anti-Christian Pharisee? This is obviously no character of fiction, 
why we, we have several, several of his writings. I mean, there are some pretty skeptical, atheistic, uh, anti-Christian writers out there. But so far as I know, no one has ever suggested, even suggested, that Paul was anything less than a real preacher of Christ. Uh, liberals will, author, will argue against the authorship of many of his letters, perhaps. Uh, even the most extreme critics, though, like Bart Ehrman, still accept that he certainly wrote these magnificent letters of Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, and 1 Thessalonians. But, you know, frankly, you have those. Um, you have the man. So this is not the republished myths of some Dionysius. These, these are not Jewish mystic fantasies. Um, the man had not had a hallucination. You notice that he, even in his defense, makes the point that he was not alone when this happened, and that those who were with him also saw the light, though they didn't hear the Lord's voice, which was just for Paul. But where then this change in Paul? Machen goes and turns over every possibility and thoroughly answers every critic and concludes that there really is only one reasonable answer that has ever been proposed. The answer that Paul himself declares repeatedly in almost all his letters that is recorded three times for us in this book. This tremendous change came because Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, the risen Jesus. The only rational explanation that's ever been proposed In the middle of the 18th century, there was a bright young man named George Littleton, a graduate of Eton and Cambridge, who made a life for himself in politics. Uh, Our uh, English friend in the congregation may perhaps have heard of him because he was actually Chancellor of the Exchequer, British equivalent of Treasury uh, Secretary, and uh, had had some prominence uh, a couple hundred years ago in British politics. Well, this man set out to examine the evidence for the Christian faith and focus specifically on the conversion of the Apostle Paul. As a result of this examination, he not only became a convinced Christian, but he also wrote a book entitled Observations on the Conversion and Apostleship of St. Paul. In it, he concluded that, quote, the conversion and apostleship of St. Paul alone. I'm sorry, I can't do an English accent. The conversion and apostleship of St. Paul alone duly considered, was of itself a demonstration sufficient to prove Christianity to be a divine revelation. That is to say, as Machen said, you cannot explain the sudden transformation of this violent, vehement persecutor of the church to be turned into the, the apostle who faithfully preached the faith that he once despised. The Spirit of God f- feels Uh, appropriate that we should have three times this testimony recorded, plus all the references in his letters, as a thorough proof of the gospel of Christ. Paul himself says it's his defense. Paul was not sitting around considering the claims of Christ one day as he was marching toward Damascus. He had not been rereading his Bible in the light of the life and death and claimed resurrection of Jesus to see if perhaps any ancient prophecies concerning the Messiah might have been fulfilled. He was not unhappy in any way, searching for something. Rather, he says that he was vigorously, militantly defending that Jewish faith that he had held since his infancy, seeking to rid it of the blight of the heretics who claimed that Jesus was the Messiah. 
It was as he so vigorously and violently pursued this course of action that God stopped him on his tracks. Was it sunstroke? Was it like a hundred years ago the German scholar Beschlag said, O blessed drop of blood, which by pressing at the right moment upon the brain of Paul produced such a moral wonder. I didn't read that garbage, by the way. Machen mentions it in his book. Um, Was it a blessed drop of blood that changed this man? Well, as I say, he already has anticipated the objection and gives the answer. His companions who were there too and only saw the light, but they were terrified. And the point is, Paul was no Mohammed getting a revelation in a cave somewhere that Jesus appeared not only to him, he says, elsewhere, but many, many other eyewitnesses. 1 Corinthians 15, he goes on to say how he appeared to Peter and then the other apostles and the Lord's family and others, 500 followers at one time, most of whom he said are still alive. One man comments, though it's perfectly possible for one man to have an hallucination, or even two men might have the same hallucination by a singular coincidence, but that 11 men of intelligence whose characters and writings indicate their their sanity in other respects, or that 500 men in a body should have the same hallucination at the same time, stretches the law of probability to the breaking point. Or as one said, it would be a greater it'd be a greater miracle to have 500 men have the same hallucination than to have one rise from the dead. Okay. Uh, Paul left Jerusalem believing that the Christian message was a dangerous fraud. He arrived having utterly forsaken those views, convinced rather that he was the Son of God and the only way of salvation for sinful men. And therefore, he continually explains this change as the result of this encounter on the Damascus road. It's repeated in Acts. It's scattered in his letters. Last of all, he appeared to me, and so forth, he tells the Corinthians. Uh, Have I not seen Jesus our Lord, he asks to those who are doubting his credentials in the second letter. He tells the Ephesians of the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly, and so forth. Well, because of this, he would not be silent about it. And, well, did did he get rewarded for this new position? Uh, Was it a very lucrative change, perhaps? Did he get, uh, like other so-called prophets or religious uh, leaders, did he get money or women or power? Oh, no. Religion was not even a crutch for Paul. It was extremely costly. As he points out at the beginning of this, he had been an honored man among his family, his nation, his teachers, the members of his own sect. He had his whole life in front of him. He, as a young man, had risen to the place of being on the council of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the greatest uh, honor in Israel. And now, as a result of his encounter with Jesus, he counted it all rubbish. His former friends tried to kill him. He was no longer the honored representative of an established religion in the imperial world. He was the bearer of a message that no one ever heard of, a message that, not to put too fine a point on it, struck Jewish years as blasphemy and struck Gentiles as utterly ridiculous that the salvation of the whole world should depend upon the death of an obscure Jewish rabbi that had been executed by the Roman authorities. This was the new Paul and the message that he was committed to to spread. His problems vastly multiplied a thousandfold when he that day became a follower of Christ. He went to Damascus a hunter. He entered the city hunted, a wanted man. 
but he cared not, for he had met Jesus of Nazareth, risen from the dead, whom ever after he would proclaim to be the Savior and the King of kings. He was willing to suffer the loss of all things, to spend his life in the greatest peril and excruciating difficulty, if only he could finish the race serving one who loved him and gave himself for him. Now, I don't, I've belabored it a little bit, but friends, it's a powerful point. It's three times in the book of Acts. It's throughout the New Testament. This is a powerful reason, a defense of the Christian faith and of the Apostle Paul. And we must reckon with it. Jesus is alive. Second, this is given to us to teach us that Jesus changes lives. Jesus changes lives. The testimony doesn't only teach us that Jesus is the living Lord. He is the Lord who changes people like Paul. Paul is, in fact, in the New Testament, I think the premier example of conversion. We read about many conversions in the New Testament, of course, although we often know few details. But in Paul, we're given this case study. We're given the story. We're given it from his own inside perspective in various ways. Our Savior, Jesus, can be an example for us in a great many things, but not in conversion, you see. Paul has that honor in the New Testament of what it means for a man to turn to God in Christ, and not just in its effects, but uh, to reassure us that, you see, none of us are too far gone for God's great, mighty power to save. In fact, and this is a great encouragement to people like you, to people who hear this testimony. Uh, does it matter what you have done? Does that limit your, use, your usefulness and service to the Lord? Well, Paul takes, excuse me, God takes this man, Paul, who, have had, who had been the worst, rabid, anti-Christian man, and makes it his great delight to set him as the apostle and ambassador to the nations. God delights in great redemptions. When people turn to the Lord, amazing things happen. This is what we are to understand from this story. This is what God does when he gets hold of a life. The Lord chose Paul, especially, he writes elsewhere, in order to encourage us. And so we are to commit ourselves to afresh, to serving the Lord in whatever purpose he has given to us in his kingdom, that when we turn to the Lord, in whatever capacity, that we too are received and blessed. And so the life of Paul, after becoming a follower of Jesus, was not just one of grudging acceptance. Okay, I suppose that even you can come in. Oh, no. This man's life becomes then one of the great adventures in history. He travels the world with the good news that sinful men can find peace with God through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, a message as odd as it was, that transformed the lives of multitudes of people and Christian churches established throughout the imperial world in many cities. And so that by the, by the time Paul died, Majin was right, Christianity had become a world religion, a force to be reckoned with in the world of that day. Everything you notice also in this story comes from God. Nothing stemmed from Paul. God didn't look down to see if there was some merit in this man that qualified him to come to salvation. On the contrary, he confesses to how he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor. Well, 1 Timothy 1.13, he says those things about himself as well as describing it here. A man that clearly deserved God's wrath and judgment. And this is the man that was given such mercy. 
Now, of course, this is true of every Christian, but this is the power of testimony that we can see, well, man, if God can do that with him and, and then use him and bless him in such a wonderful way, well, surely there's hope for me. But we need these flesh and blood encouragements, you see. And what is true here of conversion is true of every Christian, of course. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace that was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, and so forth. Not that we have to describe predestination in every testimony, of course, but the point is clear. It's all of God! Look at what Paul did. Did he deserve anything? Did he do anything? Could he expect anything other than wrath and judgment? No. And and God broke into his life, turned the man around, received him in grace, forgave him of his sins, blessed him, and said, you are my jewel. I, I wish to I wish to have this jewel of my grace to be shown to the world in you. Well, as a Pharisee, Paul had been proud of his spiritual sight, and now God blinded him so that he could truly begin to see. He began his journey perhaps saying, I can see, but by this means of being made blind and being led by the hand to this Ananias, this man who is... uh, able then to deliver him from his blindness and give him sight again. It's a, it's a way of saying, "'Twas blind, but now I see," right? Which we can all say. God doesn't always have to humble us so mightily as he humbled Paul, but that light from heaven has its way of blinding us and knocking down the most insolent and proud and hateful enemies of the church among us. And the person to whom you speak may have terrible sins in his past. He may be militantly opposed to Christianity. He may be just as convinced that Christianity is a myth and a dangerous myth at that. And this chapter says, Jesus Christ is mighty to save. These are the very people he delights to redeem in order that he might show his power and grace and mercy to the world. And so that's why this testimony is here, not just a defense that Jesus is a risen Lord, but the demonstration, the unassailable demonstration that Jesus changes lives. Third, that Jesus also makes us ambassadors of grace. The third reason this is here and so emphasized and repeated, I judge, is that Jesus makes us ambassadors of his grace. We, we as Christians, we say, well, how are we supposed to bear witness to the world of Christ. Um, we, you know, we, we have these opportunities, and yet we, we don't know what to do. Um, okay, so you now if I'd just gotten beat up by a mob, an angry mob who was trying to kill me, which is Paul's situation here, I don't think I would have the presence of mind then to say, well, let me tell you about Jesus. Uh, but Paul had this presence of mind. He asked permission from the Roman commander to address this Jewish mob that had just attacked him, that wanted to kill him, Uh, Somebody had accused him of bringing a Gentile into the temple courts and defiling it. Um, So they wanted to kill him. He got permission. He addressed the crowd in their own native Aramaic, identifying themselves, himself with them as a fellow Jew. His address falls into three parts, you notice. His life before meeting Christ, 
his experience of meeting Christ, and third, his life ever after as an apostle to the Gentiles since meeting Christ. Now, as soon as he uttered the word, word Gentiles, the, the mob was reminded and, and, and uh, he wasn't even able to finish his message. But this basic outline of a story is a story that communicates hope and life to the world. And if you need some encouragement, some help, some clearer thinking about how we can be an ambassador of grace uh, in our own way, well, here is the testimony par excellence in the scriptures. Before meeting Christ, after. Now you say, what if you're like my wife? What if, we, what if you don't have a before section that can be named, uh, right? You say, well, hmm, I, I grew up in a faithful home, and for all the ups and downs of my early and middle life, perhaps, I've always known the Lord and his love. Um, well, if that's your situation here, then you are blessed indeed and of the same, in the same situation, for example, as David, many others in the Bible. David says, I, I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. You made me trust on you at the mother, my mother's breast. Now, the fact that David had uh, no recollection of any time when he didn't know the Lord did not keep him from having plenty to tell about what God had meant to him, what God had done for him, and what God does indeed for everyone who hopes in him. The Psalms are chock full of David's testimonies of God's mercy and rescue and teaching and humbling and comforting and convicting and then forgiving. And you remember how Jesus told the Gadarene man we started with earlier, go and tell what great things the Lord has done for you? Well, David had plenty of things to tell, and every Christian has plenty of reasons why you can first be thankful to God, and second, you can tell others the great things that God has done for you. Just be mindful of his benefits, right? Psalm 103. So all of Christ's people come to understand that they are sinners in the sight of God. Sometimes younger, sometimes older, it doesn't matter. We have all come to understand certain things that Paul came to understand in a very dramatic way, that we are sinners in the sight of God, and we likewise have come to know that Jesus is the Savior of sinners, and we have asked for forgiveness through Christ, and all Christians have learned to trust him and him alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel, and we are still learning how to follow him as our Lord and Master and growing in the love of God. How do I know this? Because this is the only way anyone becomes a Christian, and Paul can use his own experience as an illustration for all of us. Um, Maybe we don't have the light in the middle of the Damascus Road, but, but we all come to Christ in the same way. Sometimes there's a tremendous change, and you can sing of the hour you first believed at a packed, sweaty evangelistic crusade, or, or sometimes it happens so gradually that you, you, can't, you can't even discern what the beginning of your conversion might be. In any case, the point is plainly to tell the great things that the Lord has done for you, chiefly that he has saved a wretch like me. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, he has done this and many more great things for you, and you are his witness. So, take this from the Apostle Paul, as any first century reader would be eager to hear, what is a good testimony like? Well, Paul gives this 
before meeting Christ and after. He tells the great things the Lord has done for him, the things he's seen and heard, he says. He also clearly identifies with his audience. There he was in Jerusalem. And so Paul explains his background, that, that Paul, though he was born in Cilicia, he, was, he, he grew up in Jerusalem at the feet of that famous and respected rabbi Gamaliel. Gets a little cred from Gamaliel there. As a Pharisee, he was trained according to the strictest law of the fathers. He had this zeal to preserve the ancient traditions, the zeal, he says, that led him to persecute to the death the people of this sect or way and to imprison men and women alike. All this, of course, works very well with his audience, you notice, because what are they doing? In their zeal for God, they are trying to murder this man because of his testimony of Christ. So Paul, in giving his testimony, is, is making this connection with them. He's not saying, what's wrong with you depraved people? He says, no, I, I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. You could have learned some things from me. He doesn't say, how could you do such a wicked thing and try to murder me in cold blood? He says, I know exactly how you feel. And it was the very zeal that led the nation to kill her Messiah. Just as I used to put people to death in my blind zeal, he writes elsewhere. Well, the point is, uh, not just the before, uh, beginning, middle, and afterward, we, we, we need to likewise drop our pride and pretensions when we talk about God's great grace and forgiveness. The, man who's, the one who saved a wretch like me, here's a man who is humbled over his past, who's confessing his wrongs, who clearly knows what it means to be forgiven, who is not ashamed to say, I am a sinful man. I, am, I, was, I had zeal without knowledge. I was murderous in my religious spirit. And we also, therefore, come not only before God, but before others as fellow forgiven sinners, enjoying God's forgiveness. And if anything else, if you're anything else but a forgiven sinner, people will be offended by something other than the gospel. So this is given to us so many times to teach us what a good testimony is. Be to other people just what you are alone on your knees before God, a humble, forgiven man with so many reasons to thank the Lord and to give a testimony of praise to him that he has done great things for you. The basics of a Christian testimony. Now, sometimes we think, oh, if only I had that great testimony that I was first a drug-abusing, whatever, a wretch in the gutter, and then Christ came to me. Uh, it's, it's foolish to want somebody else's testimony. God knows how to give each one according to his need. I mean, I can, I can think of my wife, and I, I can see the beauty of somebody who is, has a testimony of serving the Lord her whole life long, and I say, oh, how I covet that for other people. I wish I had a testimony like that. And she, has, she sees me of having a more dramatic testimony as a uh, young, young man, and says, oh, well, uh, you know, maybe that's a good testimony. This is foolishness. Your testimony is a good testimony. David's testimony is a good testimony. Why? Because it's the testimony of how God has dealt with you. So, take what you got. Be what you are to others, just what you are before God on your knees. You are a humble, 
saved sinner, every last one, with plenty of reasons to praise God and to tell others of the great things he's done. In conclusion, God did not choose Saul because there was anything worthy in him. He didn't look down through the corridors of time and say, I think that man Saul may someday choose me, and therefore I will choose him as a pretty good apostle. No, no, no. The Bible was very clear. Salvation depended upon anything in us. Not a one would be saved, but this is good news because it means that God can take anyone, even a man breathing out murder at the very moment, and change his heart from intense hatred to loving submission to his mighty power. That means there is hope for everyone. And for this reason, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1, because I'm the chief of sinners, I obtained mercy. That in me first, Christ Jesus might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Well, Christ makes the same great difference today as he made in Paul's life, the very same difference. And can Christ still be found? Oh, yes. He promises, ask and you will receive. He promises you can always find him. Here you are sitting here tonight. You can meet Christ this very night, just as surely as Paul did. And it will be as wonderful for you in all the ages to come than it it has been for him. We are not asking people to believe in an argument or an idea, but to trust and love and to submit to a person. A person who is clearly alive from the dead, whose deeds are recorded in history and in the lives of such people as Paul and you and me. This person sits now at the right hand of the Father with a hand that you can touch and scars that you can feel. A one who has said to us, I, even I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. He is here for you to call upon this evening. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for such a great testimony from such a wretch as Saul of Tarsus. It gives us all great encouragement. It gives us wisdom to know that these things truly are assured that Jesus is alive, that he makes a change, that he has likewise called us. We pray that we might in some way have grace to be his ambassadors, that you would challenge others and change them through our own testimony. I pray if anyone here who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, who has not had that meeting, that surely something that I have said tonight would say, I must meet this man as my Savior. O Lord, I receive, I believe. Come and fulfill this work in me. We pray that it would be someone's